4: The former nurse, Lucy Letby, has been found guilty
1: of murdering seven babies and attempting to kill six others at the Countess of Chester Hospital.
4: Between June 2015 and June 2016, babies who seemed to be
0: doing reasonably well would suddenly collapse. Lucy Letby was the common factor.
2: The verdicts make the 33-year-old
0: Britain's most prolific baby killer.
2: Lucy Letby, I sentence you to imprisonment for life.
4: This was a podcast about one of the most anticipated criminal trials for years. It's now a podcast about one of the worst serial killers in modern times. At 12.52pm on Friday, August the 18th, 2023, we brought you the news that a neonatal nurse was guilty of killing babies in her care.
0: After a trial lasting for over 10 months and more than 110 hours of painstaking deliberation, the jury decided that Lucy Letby murdered seven babies at the Countess of Chester Hospital and she tried to kill six more.
4: She was cleared of two further charges of attempted murder and the jury could not reach verdicts on six further allegations.
0: I'm Liz Hull, Northern Correspondent for the Mail. I've been in court throughout and have reported on the case as it developed. And I'm Caroline Cheatham, a broadcast
4: journalist. Every week, we've examined what's happened and brought you the details
0: behind the headlines. This is the trial of Lucy Letby.
2: Mr Speaker, with permission, I would like to make a statement on the inquiry into the circumstances surrounding the crimes of Lucy Letby. As Mr Justice Goss said as he sentenced her to 14 whole life orders this was a cruel, calculated and cynical campaign of child murder and a gross breach of the trust all citizens place in those who work in the medical and caring professions. I cannot begin to imagine the hurt and suffering these families went through and I know from my conversations with them last week the trial brought these emotions back to the surface. And concerningly They were exacerbated by the fact the families discovered new information about these events concerning their children during the course of the trial. We have a duty to get them the answers they deserve, to hold people to account, and to make sure lessons are learned. That's why, on the day of conviction, I ordered an independent inquiry into the events at the Countess of Chester Hospital making clear the victims' families would shape this. This inquiry will examine the case's wider circumstances, including the Trust's response to clinicians who raised the alarm and the conduct of the wider NHS and its regulators. And I can confirm to the House that Lady Justice Thurwell will lead this inquiry.
4: That was the moment on Monday when Steve Barclay, the Health Secretary announced to Parliament that Senior Appeal Court Judge Lady Justice Thirlwall would oversee the public inquiry into the crimes committed by Lucy Letby at the Countess of Chester Hospital. Because it's such an important moment, we wanted to bring you a special episode to explain a bit more about her appointment and why it's so significant.
0: Welcome to episode 61, Another Judge.
4: So in Monday's episode, we managed to bring you the news that Lady Justice Thirlwall would be in charge of the public inquiry into what happened at the Countess of Chester Hospital and how Lucy Letby was able to attack and kill children over a 12-month period from 2015 to 2016. But we wanted to bring you an extra episode today just to bring you some more detail around who she is and what she's done before and why this moment is so important.
0: So we got in touch with one of the best legal commentators in the country and he explained exactly who she is, why she's perfect for the job and a bit more about how the public inquiry
1: will work. Hello, I'm Joshua Rosenberg and I'm a legal commentator.
0: Yeah, so we've got you on, Joshua, to talk about this quite momentous announcement that Lady Justice Thirlwall will chair the public inquiry into Lucy Letby's crimes And I was just hoping, really, that you could just talk us through why she is a good appointment and what it means.
1: I think that uh, Lady Justice Thirlwall, Dame Kate Thirlwall, is the ideal judge to chair this inquiry. As a barrister, when she was at the bar, she appeared as counsel in a number of public inquiries, including uh, two which are relevant – the Leicestershire Children's Home Inquiry and the North Wales Children's Home Inquiry. But even more significantly, uh, just before she became a High Court judge in 2010, she chaired a major National Health Service inquiry into the deaths of patients at Airedale Hospital in West Yorkshire. Now, these were uh, allegations which are chillingly similar to the Lucy Letby case. The allegation was that a senior nurse had deliberately killed patients by injecting them with high doses of painkillers. These were elderly patients, not babies. The nurse, Anne Grig Booth, died of a drug overdose while awaiting trial, and so the trial never went ahead. This uh, inquiry that uh, Kate Thirlwall did uh, was a private inquiry uh, set up by the NHS, and it didn't have public hearings, but it certainly shows that uh, before she became a judge, she had experience of cases of this sort.
4: Joshua, in terms of um... The pace, the speed of Steve Barclay meeting with the families this week and appointing the judge, what does that tell you about the pace and the energy in this?
1: I was surprised at quite how quickly she was named. Uh, But uh, on the other hand, that doesn't mean that the inquiry is going to start as quickly because uh, a great deal of work has to be done before the inquiry can start to hear evidence. Uh, but what it shows is that the senior judiciary, the Lord Chief Justice of England and Wales, Lord Burnett of Malden, was prepared to release her from the day job of being a Lady Justice of Appeal, sitting in the Court of Appeal here in criminal cases and civil appeals, and uh, allow her to take time off to, to do this inquiry. Uh, she is a senior judge she served as what's called the senior presiding judge of england and wales which is a three-year stint you're responsible for the welfare of high court judges and she served uh, during the height of the covid pandemic and so she's an experienced judge often these inquiries uh, have a retired judge and some people say that if you want a job done quickly uh, then you give it to somebody who's got a day job that they want to return to
0: that is a good point but we have to confess, we've read your blog on this, Joshua, before you came on. I was interested in what you were talking about. Obviously, the families have been fundamental in meeting Steve Barclay and pushing for this public inquiry. And you kind of, its correct me if I'm wrong, but kind of signalled a kind of note of caution in almost, not bias is probably the wrong word, is it? But kind of giving them too much say when actually it's supposed to be an independent public inquiry.
1: To me, an independent inquiry is one where the judge who's chairing the inquiry, if it is a judge, approaches the issues from a position of neutrality. Uh, She, the chair, doesn't make up her mind. She certainly doesn't favor one side over the other. And this inquiry is obviously about what happened to these babies, what terrible things Lucy Letby did, but also about how she was allowed to do them, how hospital managers uh, dealt with complaints about her how they allowed her to carry on for as long as they did so Senior staff at the hospital, and you've seen them give evidence, perhaps others who haven't given evidence, are going to be what are called core participants in this inquiry. That means that they can be legally represented, they will be expected to give evidence, uh, they can uh, be punished if they refuse to hand over documents or or give evidence. Uh, And uh, obviously they are very much in the frame Uh, And they need to feel that um, the allegations against them are being handled fairly and properly and neutrally. And for Steve Barclay, the Health Secretary, to say to MPs, as he did on Monday, uh, that he has raised with Lady Justice Thirlwall the fact that the families should work with her to shape the terms of reference and the fact that the health secretary has discussed with the inquiry chair the family's desire for the inquiry to take place in phases so that it provides answers to vital questions as soon as possible, that suggests that the families are having quite a close say in the inquiry. And indeed, last week, uh, the uh, Department of Health and Social Care said that Barclay had been clear from the outset that he wanted the families to have the opportunity to engage with and shape the scope of the inquiry, Uh, and that was one of the reasons why, uh, as you say, he put what was going to be an informal, non-statutory inquiry onto a statutory basis, which means, of course, that witnesses uh, will be required to attend and answer questions. So he has gone a long way to meet the concerns of the families. That's understandable. The question is uh, whether he has tilted the inquiry in a way that uh, the other core participants might regard as unfair.
4: In a court of law, it's been found that these families have been horribly wronged. So I suppose that would influence his treatment of the families.
1: They've been bereaved and they have probably been misled. They've certainly had information withheld from them. So in that sense, yes, they have been wronged. The question of the inquiry is which individuals are responsible for this behaviour? It's all very well to say that the hospital behaved wrongly, but the hospital is made up of individuals. And what the inquiry has to find is what these individuals did and who these individuals were.
0: So would you expect in that sense? You talked about core participants. Obviously, the families will be core participants, the hospital management will be a core participant. And the consultant body, will they be a core participant? Do you anticipate as well?
1: I do think that the senior doctors will be core participants, yes. Let's say you're starting from the position you know nothing about this. You would want to ask the consultants when they were aware of concerns about Letby and what they did about them, whether they acted quickly enough, whether they acted firmly enough. Uh, And so, yes, I'm sure there will be questions put to the consultants. uh, And yes, I would have thought that some consultants will be core participants and legally represented.
0: Is that what core participant essentially means, that they will have barristers and lawyers to help them when they give evidence?
1: It does, and uh, that may well be provided at public expense. But yes, it means that they will see the evidence that they will have lawyers who may be able to cross-examine the other witnesses. And let's imagine there's a dispute between the hospital management and the consultants and the, the, the senior medical staff and indeed the senior nursing staff. Well, if people give oral evidence, then their lawyers will want to cross-examine people from the other team, for example, and and people from the other team will want to cross-examine the witnesses who have just given evidence. Now, of course, it's up to the inquiry chair to keep this under control. Uh, The chair won't want every witness to be cross-examined by every other lawyer in the hearing room. But as a matter of principle, if allegations are made by one group against another group, well, those allegations will want to be tested.
4: Joshua, on the, on the core participants, that, again, that you talked about, does every single one of them have a lawyer representing them, potentially?
1: No. Uh, let me give you um, an entirely separate example um, where we um, know uh, what's happening. Quite recently, there was an inquiry set up into allegations that UK special forces unlawfully killed insurgents in Afghanistan. And there are about a dozen families, bereaved families, who say that their family members were effectively murdered or uh, subject to manslaughter as a result of British troops shooting them when they were no longer a threat to UK or Allied troops. And they are represented at the hearing but through one firm of solicitors. Uh, Originally, there were two firms of solicitors, and the judge said, no, I'm only going to allow uh, funding for one firm of solicitors and one leading barrister and perhaps a junior counsel. I don't know the details. So the inquiry chair has to uh, work out that uh, if people have a common interest, and presumably families of those who were uh, murdered by Lucy Letby have, to some extent, a common interest, then they may share lawyers.
0: I'm just thinking about the Manchester Arena Inquiry, and I think that not all 22 families had the same barrister and legal representation. They were split slightly. Um, I can't remember the why that was or the terms of that, but you do tend to get kind of almost like groups of the same people in these inquiries represented by different barristers for whatever reason.
1: One of the first things that Dame Kate Thurwall will have to decide at the outset of this inquiry before she hears evidence is the legal representation. And it will be up to people who would uh, wish to be core participants, people who might be in the frame, to argue that they should have legal representation. And she says to them, well, look, you're all doctors. Surely you can all be represented by the same lawyer they might say to her through their lawyers, no, we have different interests. Putting it bluntly, we think that we did the right thing, but that person over there didn't move quickly enough. One person may blame another.
4: Yeah, it also explains why they take a long time once they're going, because you've got all those bands of, of legal expertise in the room, all with different interests and different people to represent. It slightly explains for the people who don't visit these things like you do, Joshua, and like we will do and cover these inquiries, that explains why they take a long time.
1: It does. And if you think about it, our legal system uh, works on the basis that if you question somebody face-to-face, then you are more likely to get uh, the full account of what happened, what they may have done wrong, what others may have done wrong than you would by simply taking a written statement from that individual uh, and going away and reading it. There's nothing like having to answer questions in cross-examination from somebody who's very well-informed and has all the evidence uh, in front of them to uh, persuade you that maybe your initial dismissal of what happened uh, perhaps uh, wasn't quite the right answer. And uh, you you do see people... Change their evidence under cross examination. You do see people admit, well, perhaps I could have handled this better. Or you do see people saying, well, now you mention it, I do remember that somebody said this to me on that day and I ignored it. So uh, this sort of thing does take time. Uh, You know, you can't do it aggressively. It's not like you see on television. It does, uh, you know, take an hour or two or a, a morning to cross examine somebody. But it's the way to do it if you have an inquiry of this sort. And these inquiries take years.
4: Just to follow-up on that, Joshua, which takes me on to the possible repercussions of any inquiry and what it can lead to. You talked about it not being confrontational, not being aggressive, being much more inquisitorial, if you like. But what if what they say can lead to criminal repercussions? Where does that stand in a public inquiry environment?
1: I think that's a difficult question. Certainly, it's possible for somebody to say, I'm not going to reply on the grounds that it may incriminate me it's quite important to look at Section 2 of the Inquiries Act 2005, and that says an inquiry panel is not to rule on and has no power to determine, that means no power to decide, any person's civil or criminal liability, but an inquiry is not to be inhibited in the discharge of its functions, in what it does, by any likelihood of liability being inferred from the facts that it determines, decides, or the recommendations that it makes. So just summing that up again, the inquiry chair mustn't decide whether any of the witnesses is guilty of a criminal offence or indeed a civil wrong that they might face uh, legal action for in the civil courts. But just because People might think that a witness has committed a criminal offence or has committed a civil wrong. That shouldn't stop the inquiry chair from asking questions or indeed from making recommendations.
0: And can we just ask you about anonymity? Because obviously the trial had strict reporting restrictions on it. Can Lady Justice Thurwell have the same powers to restrict reporting
1: She certainly has powers to restrict reporting. And if you look at Section 19 of of the Inquiries Act, that explains her powers. The starting point is that an inquiry takes place in public but Section 19 allows her to impose restrictions on disclosure or publication of any evidence, and that must include, I would have thought, the names of witnesses. But uh, she has to take into account the extent to which any restriction on publication might inhibit the allaying of public concern. In other words, if somebody is not named, is the public inquiry doing its job of persuading the public that lessons are being learned. And so it's a difficult uh, decision. And when a judge is considering imposing restrictions, and just to take a recent example, that was certainly what all the uh, troops involved in the Afghanistan inquiry, the inquiry I mentioned into unlawful killings, all those troops have demanded anonymity because they say their lives are in danger. And generally speaking, uh, Lord Justice Haddon Cave, Sir Charles Haddon Cave has agreed to grant it. But he has said that there may be uh, a good reason why senior officers commanding the special forces, uh, whose names are well known, might well be named at the inquiry. So it's a decision for the judge. uh, And uh, the judge, the inquiry chair, in this case, will normally hear arguments put on behalf of the media.
0: Joshua, thank you so much for your time. Brilliant. Thank you so much.
1: My pleasure. My pleasure.
4: So we wanted to know a little bit about what the family's reaction had been to this appointment. So Tamlyn Bolton, who represents a number of the families at the centre of this case, came onto the podcast and told us a bit about how they feel.
3: It's huge news and it's fabulous news. It's exactly what the families we certainly represent wanted. We heard Steve Barclay speak in Parliament yesterday and he said that he'd met with the families that he'd put the options to them, that this is what they'd chosen, essentially what they demanded happen. And that's fantastic. On his understanding of that, and I think the main issue that he was putting across was this power to compel witnesses to attend, to give evidence under oath, which is hugely significant, particularly given what we heard at trial about some of the goings on at the trust. I think that's exactly why it needed to be a statutory inquiry.
0: And have you spoken to some of the families, Tamlin, since the announcement or, you know, in anticipation of the announcement?
3: They were presented with
0: options, is my understanding,
3: that the independent inquiry would move quicker. That's quite significant. You know, it gets you answers uh, on a far quicker basis and a better understanding of what happened to their children. But Steve Barclay did say we were going to do the inquiry in phases. So you'd get information on certain topics as they concluded and the inquiry moved along which really answers that question about pace. So it it's like it ticks all the boxes for what, you know, our families certainly were saying that they demanded that the government do.
0: Yeah, because there is a model, I think, probably the, what he's talking about is because I think that's the way the Manchester Arena Inquiry worked in that Sir John Saunders presented, I think it was three different reports at various stages. Absolutely. And that
3: was the drawback of the independent inquiry, that you'd put these families through what could be two years or 18 months in the very least, of an inquiry where they thought they were going to get conclusions and they were going to get answers. But because you don't have all the documents and you don't have all the witness evidence, you draw a conclusion that isn't really based on all of the information. For not just the families involved, but for the paediatricians, for that unit, for that trust, Mm. for us as the general
4: public, we don't have full answers. Isn't it odd that you can lie An inquiry that's not statutory. You can refuse to take part in an inquiry that's not statutory. You can refuse to give email trails to an inquiry that's not statutory. So, by its very nature, then, the only benefit of a non statutory inquiry is when everyone wants to cooperate. I know that in Grenfell,
3: they were free to give evidence that then was not going to give rise to prosecutions.
0: There is a campaign for this duty of candor law so that people can be prosecuted if they give false evidence, I think. There was a call for that after the Hillsborough Inquest.
3: I think that would be right, but fortunately that's not the circumstance
0: we're now looking at for
3: the yeah. for the levy cases, which
4: is great news. From the family's perspective, Tamalyn, is there still a concern of the delay now, setting it up, or is there any assurance that will happen, you know, that will be expedited fairly rapidly?
3: We haven't had any confirmation of an insurance that it will, but you know, it was announced only a couple of days ago, and we already have a
4: judge. That is very quick. You're representing the families in any future civil cases. Does the public inquiry impact your work now, working with those families, moving that civil action forward? We certainly can be ordered
3: to stop, to pause that action. I haven't had any indication of that yet. So right now, we move forward. We act for very vulnerable, injured people all the time, and we as claimant lawyers don't really like to sit on our hands and just let time pass.
4: And just in terms of your civil action, Tamlin, and your work, what's the process now? What can you tell us about where that's up to? Well,
3: we've, we've been in contact with the solicitors for the hospital for a long time since when Levy was arrested, just to secure the position for the families in a civil case, because
0: there was no indication of what the outcome of that trial was going to be. Could she have been prevented from doing what she did sooner? Is, is where the kind of claim moves to. That's
3: right. Looking at the timeline and the reporting internally from the pediatricians on the ground floor in the unit, what HR was doing with any grievances that were being raised, if they were being investigated properly, if they were being investigated in line with the trust's internal policy for raising concerns and whistleblowing and grievances. The trust have a safeguarding officer. So if something's been raised with them, what actions they took. And I think would be very difficult to say that every act of harm that let be committed would have been prevented. But what we wanted to look at was where there was this moment in the timeline where steps should have been taken. And I think this is exactly Mm. my understanding from what
4: Steve Barclay said yesterday, exactly what the inquiry is now going to look at as well. Yeah, I know you've explained this before, Tamlin. I suppose the limitations to some extent of what these families can hope to achieve from this civil action particularly for those who lost children, there isn't really scope in what they can be compensated that could ever help, is there? No, that's absolutely right. If you've
3: lost a child, no matter what their age, or you've lost a husband or, or a long-term partner, there is a limit to the bereavement award that you can receive. It's a statutory amount set by the government. Depending on the date of death, it's about 13000 to £15,000. There have been tireless campaigns by claimant groups, claimant patient safety groups to increase that amount. And every time those campaigns are rejected, there are other damages that come from a death. If it's an older person, an adult working partner, and you're reliant on them, then you would look at things like their lost income that you now have to make up for, or the things they did around the house that you now have to do, those things stack up a fair bit depending on someone's salary. But for a baby that isn't bringing in any income, that isn't contributing to the household in a measured monetary way, the values are really, really limited. Mm. Um, It's awful and it's a conversation we have to have with so many families.
0: How do you set parameters for what you've lost or you a life you've potentially lost it's a it's a really difficult moral legal financial question isn't it it's just one of those kind of almost impossible things to put a figure on i totally agree it's it's unanswerable
3: and no one is going to ever pick the same figure in scotland they have a system where you can argue for a, a, an amount I don't believe that's a good system. I don't think many people in England and Wales want that system. It gives rise to arguments about: Well, did you really love them that much? I see that you went to the uh, GP for some counselling as a couple. He was previously involved with someone else. How did you know he wasn't going to leave you again? I mean, they're terrible, terrible, awful, awful arguments. Um, But the figure is exceptionally low, and that's so contradictory to say because it's very, they very hard to pick a higher figure.
0: You said it compares to someone that's had like knee surgery or something, you, you know, it's... That's right. You know, we amount. have
3: a kind of a, a typical assessment when we're looking at the value of a case. And if you've had to undergo an additional operation, for example, on whatever part of the body under general anaesthetic, you're looking at an amount of about 5,000 pounds. Mm. So when you compare something like that, to the death of your newborn baby. It's only a couple of grand more, really. Mm. My hope is some of them have had a prosecution now. We will push forward with the civil cases and we're going to have an inquiry and that those things bring some closure in some way, those three measures to these families.
4: So that's it for episode 61. We'll be back as usual on Monday. You can catch more of our post-verdict episodes on Mail Plus or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: You can give us a rating and you can share the podcast. You can also follow me at Liz Hull or send us an email at thetrialoflucylepby at gmail.com.
4: You can also follow us on Twitter at Lucy Trial or follow me at Radio Caroline. See you then.
3: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and
2: 365-day returns. Our hit series, Everything I Know About Me, is back for a brand-new season. And this time, our guest needs no introduction. I'm going to find me, Darren! But here's one anyway.
4: Hi, I'm Gemma Collins, and this is Everything I Know About Me.
2: If you think you know all about Gemma Collins, think again. Because this is the GC as you've never heard her before.
4: It's been exhausting. Unashamed. And I was really heartbroken because I was pregnant and he was having an affair. Unfiltered. I have had an operation as well years ago. I have a designer vagina. Yeah, baby!
2: I don't have camel toe. Unbelievable.
4: And then they advised me, you need to have a termination. And, uh yeah... I remember that being really stressful
2: Everything I you know about me with Gemma Collins is out this Thursday wherever you get your podcasts.